0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the decades-old problems with our immigration system, what changes are being made under the new administration, and some of the underlying causes for the massive dysfunction we have in addressing the issue. Clips today are from The Mehdi Hassan Show, The Mother Jones Podcast, Only in America, Democracy Now!, This is Hell, Intercepted, and Future Hindsight.
1: Across the Atlantic, they came from every point on the compass, many passing beneath the Statue of Liberty with fear and vision and sorrow and adventure, uh, fleeing tyranny or terror, uh, seeking haven and all seeking hope.
2: That was President George H.W. Bush in November of 1990, the last time a major revamp of the immigration system passed in the United States. That bill he signed expanded limits on legal immigration and created the diversity lottery program, the one Donald Trump froze last year. And it was bipartisan. The bill passed both the House and the Senate with big majorities. But in the over 30 years since, no such luck. Attempts at bipartisan immigration reform have failed time and again under both Democratic and Republican presidents. Congress tried for bipartisan bills in 2001, 2006, 2007, and again in 2013. As the New York Times reports, those all centered on a trade-off, amped up border security and immigration law enforcement in exchange for a path to citizenship." And all of them failed, despite bipartisan efforts and despite support from the presidents at the time. And now, the new president, Joe Biden, is taking his shot at it. Democrats formally introducing his immigration reform bill today. It includes an eight-year path to citizenship for 11 million undocumented immigrants, a faster track for dreamers to get green cards, increases in diversity visas from the current 55,000 to 80,000 and some humanity injected into the whole way in which the government discusses migrants. No more offensive talk of aliens. They're simply non-citizens. And while the details and text of the bill came solely from Democrats, Biden has expressed hope for bipartisan support for his immigration bill. It's going to be an uphill battle, though, with Republicans already throwing cold water on his proposals. Last month, on Tuesday, though, Sorry, they were casting doubt last month, and on Tuesday, the president suggested he's willing to take a piecemeal
1: approach to
2: immigration reform.
1: I would, if you had a refugee bill by itself, I'm not suggesting that, but I would, there's things that I would deal by itself, but not at the expense of saying I'm never going to do the other.
2: In a virtual press conference introducing the bill, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez today did not close the door to that approach, but made it clear why he thinks immigration reform has failed for the last three decades.
3: The reason we have not gotten immigration reform over the finish line is not because of a lack of will. Because time and time again... We have compromised too much and capitulated too quickly to fringe voices who have refused to accept the humanity and contributions of immigrants to our country and dismiss everything, no matter how uh, significant it is in terms of the national security, as amnesty.
4: What were some of the big things that Biden did when he first entered office?
5: It's been nonstop since Biden entered the White House, and he immediately started signing executive order after executive order and policy memos all related to immigration to sort of start on doing the really tight knot that was left by Trump.
6: Yeah, so it's hard to know where to start. You know, I'm, There's been so many things. I mean, just right from the start, uh, Jamil, you know, he signs an executive order ending the Muslim ban. Um, soon. There's a order stopping border wall construction that halts immediately and then you see other things like the creation of a family separation task force that's looking into how to reunite families in cases where parents were deported without their kids. Um, there's a memo that scales back ICE enforcement to a place more similar to where it was at the end of the Obama administration. And some of these orders, as you can tell, are very concrete. So border wall construction has stopped, but others are more of a looking into by in, instead of just ordering that something be done, has often said he wants it to be looked into or for a task force to be formed. So, for example, with the public charge rule, which is basically a wealth test that is designed to block poor and working class immigrants from coming to the country. In his executive order, he said, you know, task the government, his government with looking into it. And, you know, a lot of people, especially with an order that's so obviously biased like that one, would have preferred that he just eliminate it.
4: So I want to talk about executive orders here a little bit. Can you tell me about the difference between an executive order and something that goes through Congress? So
5: executive orders and we saw this a lot under previous administrations um, also Obama and and uh, and Trump but that's something that uh, the person who is sitting in that Oval Office and has the role of the President of the United States that person can write something, sign it, and make it so, (laughs) essentially. Um, That can, just like it can be done with a stroke of a pen, it can be undone with a stroke of a pen. So somebody else comes into the White House and they can just write their own new executive orders and rip the old ones and throw them in the garbage. Um, Very different from something more permanent, which is writing legislation, passing it through Congress and making it more permanent. Um, And as far as immigration goes, we haven't had permanent uh, changes to immigration in a very long time. And of course, there was already criticism of just how many executive orders Biden was signing. And uh, actually, while he was signing one of the latest immigration ones, he sort of turned to the camera, the cameras were rolling in the Oval Office, and he said,
1: There's a lot of talk with good reason about the number
4: of executive orders that I've signed. I'm not making new law, I'm eliminating bad policy. So let's start with one of the most horrifying things that happened during the Trump administration, which was family separation. What's Biden doing about that?
5: So as Noah said earlier, uh, the family separation task force is something that Biden has formed uh, via executive order. So right now, he's not doing much of anything. So far, all he said is, let me now assign this group of people to come up with solutions and to find these parents and to reunite these families. But nothing is happening right now. Um, and. I, ideally, the the goal of this is to reunite parents and with their children, and that there will be m- major changes. But the damage is already been done. These these kids and these these moms and dads have already been torn apart. Have spent time apart. Um, some have been reunited. Some have not. But really, the the trauma that. This Trump era policy cost, and this this separation, this is something that is probably going to be impossible to reverse in many cases.
4: What's life like right now for someone who's living in the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant? Yeah, well, when it
6: comes to specifically on you know what has Biden done that has changed life for undocumented immigrants in the U.S., I think the main thing is that ICE is now operating with far-scale back deportation priorities under Trump. It was basically anyone, anyone and everyone was a priority for deportation. If ICE knocked on the door looking for someone with a criminal history, for example, but they found three other undocumented people there, everyone would often get detained and deported. And that's been changed now. The Biden administration has said they're going to take a far more targeted approach in which basically only people who very recently crossed the border or people with what are called aggravated felonies are priorities for deportation. So what that means is that For the vast majority of undocumented immigrants in the United States, they are no longer going to be actively targeted by ICE, although there is a lot of concern about whether ICE is actually going to be following the orders that have been given to them on high. But if those orders are followed, it would mean that the vast majority of undocumented immigrants would be, generally speaking, safe from deportation.
4: So that sounds like a lot of change all at once. Did people get what they wanted in those changes? And I'm talking specifically here about immigration advocates.
6: It's been a mix. On you know, on the one hand, if you look at the first couple of weeks and first month of the Biden presidency, he has certainly done far more than President Obama did in his first month in office. But there are a lot of things that people were hoping that he would go further on. For example, um, at the border, there is still a CDC order in place that basically says that everyone, almost everyone who crosses the border is immediately expelled without even having the right or ability to request asylum or go before an immigration judge. And then on the um, visa side of things, there are two bans that are still in place that Trump put in last year during the pandemic that basically block most forms of legal immigration to the country. So there are three of Trump's harshest anti-immigrant policies are still on the books and they may all be lifted soon, but we don't know when that's going to happen. The Biden administration hasn't, going to set, hasn't said and it's something that advocates are very frustrated about.
5: Part of what some of the folks that I've talked to in the immigrant rights movement are happy about is that there is a very clear message that the administration is sending from the start that this is a priority. Uh, while they may not be happy with how much time things are going to take or 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 what exactly Biden is doing he's made it a priority he's he's made immigration a priority and not just that but it's really sort of in the in the words that are being used i i know one of the executive orders that he signed I highlighted one of the sentences in there that said, securing our borders does not require us to ignore the humanity of those who seek to cross them. The opposite is true, which is definitely not the kind of language that we've seen in any sort of executive order or DHS memo for many, many years. And then speaking of sort of the messaging and the, and the, and the words and how they matter, Biden has also now directed DHS to stop using the word alien. Alien. Or illegal alien, and that really matters to a lot of people. Um, I spoke with Reina Montoya, who is a DACA recipient. She's in Arizona, and she works with a. Lot, she does a lot of work with the immigrant communities, and this is what she said:
7: All these years of of community organizing from directly impacted people, I think, are a testament of what we saw in the language and the sophistication of the Biden plan, from having to redefine. Um, how they addressed us right it is within the law that they call us aliens and being able to refine that to like non, um, non-citizens non is a huge step uh, that many people would think is like oh that's just language but words matter and i remember being being in high school and having to read that very awful rhetoric it, it gets under your skin and it's like i'm not an alien and i'm a human being
3: If you could give kind of a a summary of Central American and Mexican migration to the U.S., let's just say over the last 20 years, what are the major points? What are the things that people need to kind of have in mind as we begin to look forward
8: I think the biggest thing that people should have in mind is that migration at the U.S.-Mexico border is a normal phenomena and that there are periods of what's perceived as a crisis. But, you know, having kind of a steady and regular flow of immigrants uh, and at times asylum seekers is not a new and crisis phenomena. I I think we have a tendency, we've had a tendency to call a lot of things a crisis that I I don't think really are. So that's one. You know, the patterns of migration at the border have changed over time from Central America and Mexico. You know, there have been periods where Mexicans were the predominant group crossing the border. And then there were periods when different Central American nationalities were the predominant nationality crossing the border. So these things tend to ebb and flow somewhat. There's still a good degree of Central American migration. And there have been, you know, I haven't checked the numbers on Mexico recently. You know, it it was for a long time that Mexicans were the ones who crossed, but and then it became that Central Americans were. And as the Central American numbers started going down a couple of years ago, or like in, in the past year, there was a little bit more of a Mexican flow. But I guess that's the main thing, that it, it changes. It is a, it's a constant process and it changes.
3: So based on what's happened over the last four years, what do you think the, the biggest, say, three to five challenges are for the Biden administration moving forward when you look at you know, migration from Central America you know, through Mexico into the
8: U.S.? Yeah. Migration has been incredibly discouraged by the Trump administration, whether it be through things like restricting people's ability to apply for political asylum. You know, it used to be that people crossed between ports of entry because they were doing it clandestinely. And then it became that they were crossing at the points of entry and applying for political asylum. People are back to crossing in remote areas again. That's one phenomena that I that I wanted to point out. But I think that the the you know the biggest things have been that forcing uh, asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their cases were being determined in the United States. This created a population of people kind of permanently stranded in Mexico and has been an enormous problem. Another big issue for the Biden administration is simply that there is a pent-up demand in Central America since the flows have been reduced this year because of not only the the lack of consideration of political asylum claims, but the COVID restrictions at the border, basically hardly anybody is being allowed to cross right now legally. So I think what we're going to see here in the next few months is likely to be an increased flow of Central Americans uh, across the border. And, you know, there were over the past few years caravans where just a lot of people who wanted to come north, got together, and came all at once, uh, at times in the thousands. And people did this because it's expensive to get from Central America up to the US. And basically, if they all kind of just came together and walked or took buses at different times, they found protection and they found that they could do it more cheaply. And so, you know, I think there's a good possibility that we'll see something like that. Another big thing that the, the Biden administration needs to deal with right away are these agreements with the Northern Triangle countries, uh, Honduras, Salvador, and Guatemala, that basically allow the U.S. to deport asylum seekers from other countries 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 like others, like like, uh, they could deport Guatemalans to El Salvador. Instead of sending them back to Guatemala, and what they should really be doing is considering their political asylum case here in the U.S. But they've created this this quasi what they call a safe third country agreement with the countries of Central America. They've created all these structures so that they so that the U.S. just doesn't have to consider political asylum for anybody. And so, you know, there are there's MPP. There are these safe third country agreements. There are the COVID restrictions at the border. I mean. Those are probably three of the biggies.
9: Today's
0: episode is sponsored by The New Yorker magazine. In contrast, I'm going to be talking at the end of today's show about the seemingly sky-high amount of absolute nonsense being discussed recently. Well, one antidote to the nonsense is The New Yorker. Just looking at a few of their recent articles gives you a taste. One, the wasting of the evangelical mind. The peculiarities of how American Christianity took shape help explain believers' vulnerability to conspiratorial thinking and misinformation. Number two, the untold story of queer foster families. In the 1970s, social workers in several states placed queer teenagers with queer foster parents in discreet acts of quiet radicalism. And number three, try this one. Inside Xinjiang's prison state, survivors of China's campaign of persecution reveal the scope of the devastation. Now just think for a minute if your time would be better spent reading those articles or figuring out exactly what it is about Mr. Potato Head that has people so upset. Seriously, time is a precious commodity, and there is a war raging for your attention. Choose carefully how you spend it. The New Yorker is considered by many to be one of the most influential publications in the world, not because of attention-grabbing nonsense, but because of their relentless focus on substance. So subscribe and give your mind something useful to think about. A subscription includes home delivery of the print edition each week and unlimited access to The New Yorker website. And for a limited time, you can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6. That's a savings of 50%, plus listeners of my show will receive an exclusive tote bag for free. So go to newyorker.com slash best. That's N-E-W-Y-O-R-K-E-R dot com slash best to get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 and a free tote bag. newyorker.com slash best.
10: President Biden's struggling to address the overwhelming flow of migrant children crossing the U.S.-Mexico border without their parents, many fleeing extreme violence, poverty, natural disasters in their home countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Documents obtained by several news outlets show more than 3,500 children— were detained at the border in just the first nine days of March. On Monday, CBS News reported some 3,000 children are still detained in crowded cells at Border Patrol stations. Many are being held longer than the legal limit of 72 hours as the government waits for beds to become available and shelters run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR, and Department of Health and Human Services. The Washington Post reports the shelters receive more than 450 new migrant children per day, on average, in the first week of March. Most are between the ages of 13 and 17. The Centers for uh, the Disease Control and Prevention cited the, quote, extraordinary circumstances Friday, when it said the shelters— um, can return to pre-pandemic capacity if they implement enhanced coronavirus protections. Biden's top adviser on U.S.-Mexico border policy, Roberta Jacobson, said Wednesday the administration's trying to balance a humane response to the children with the message that they should stop crossing.
9: I think all of us at every stage of this process are doing everything we can to make sure that children are well cared for and moved into facilities that are appropriate for them. But I want to make a point again that it's really important that people not make
10: the dangerous journey in the first place. During Jacobson's press briefing, she broke into Spanish several times to say the borders closed and announced the revival of an Obama-era policy that allows Central America American children to apply for admission to the United States from their home country. This comes as the Biden administration recently reopened a shelter in Carrizo Springs, Texas, that was used by the Trump administration and plans to hold some 700 migrant teenagers there. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki defended the move.
11: This is not kids being kept in cages. But this is, this is kids. This is a facility that was opened that's going to follow the same standards as other HHS facilities. It is not a replication. Certainly not. The, that's, that is never our intention of replicating the immigration policies of the past administration.
10: As the Biden administration looks for more space to house the record influx of migrant children, it may move to house them on military bases or even a vacant NASA research center in the San Francisco Bay Area. For more, we go to Aura Bogado, the senior investigative reporter at Reveal, who's long covered immigration and the conditions of detained migrant children last year in a series titled The Disappeared She Exposed How the U.S. Was Holding Migrant Children Far Longer Than Previously Known. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, it's great to have you with us. Uh, Can you start off by saying, would you call this a surge? Would you call it a crisis? And what needs to be done?
9: There is an increase of uh, young, mostly Central American migrants uh, at the southern border. We can use different words. We can call it a crisis. We can call it a surge, which is a term that's usually more associated with it natural water phenomena. Um, What we shouldn't call it is a surprise. The Biden administration long knew uh, that there would be an increase of children at the southern border and had a long time to prepare while uh, he's only been in office less than two months. uh, He'd been elected prior to that. And he campaigned on specifically uh, changing policies and practices that happened under the Trump administration. Some of that has indeed happened. But when it comes to uh, the number of children that are in certain facilities, whether they're cages or shelters, uh, and how long they're being kept for, we haven't really seen that much of a change. And Aura, explain what you think needs to happen. What should the Biden administration be doing now? So that there aren't so many uh, children in detention. Well, as a reporter, I would like for the Biden administration to be transparent. Something again that I think the uh, the uh, the Biden administration when he was a campaign, was both implicit and and tacit about uh, in his promises. I was on a call with several reporters yesterday with uh, the current commissioner of the CBP, Troy Miller, and he would not tell us the number of children that are in these cells at the border. They're usually called the hileras. They're really... Uh, cold cells that's how kids and and adults describe them and he wouldn't tell us the number he said that he couldn't share because it was law enforcement sensitive he was pressed on this and uh, he told us that it was that many multiple agencies were involved Uh, again that doesn't explain why he couldn't tell us the number of children that were there Um, as you mentioned several reporters have gotten their hands on um internal numbers. And so it seems to be about 3,200 children are in these cells. Um, I can't imagine the reason why this would be law enforcement sensitive. Um, And I, as a reporter, can think of the reasons why people want to know. Um, So I think, you know, at, at, at a very basic level, we should at least know the numbers of children that are being kept uh, in different facilities, both at the border and also in shelters. That would be a great start. Uh, I would love to see the Biden administration just give us, you know, some really, really basic transparency. And Ara, can you explain how the pandemic has been impacting uh, the ways in which uh, unaccompanied minor children are being held? What's, uh, I mean, is it taking longer release them as a result of the pandemic and explain what article, what Title 42 is and how the Trump administration made the CDC invoke this uh, title. Yeah, so Title 42 is a public health uh, title that um, uh, it's it's a practice that keeps um, uh, the public health uh, it centers the public health of the current U.S. population. And so the idea is that you don't want people coming from the outside that might bring uh, something like COVID into the United States. As it is, we know that COVID is already in the United States. Um, and so that was under the prior administration. that The CDC um, felt the need to you know, close the border for that reason. Um, that's still in place. That's not to say that no one has entered the border uh, even during When Trump was still in office, but certainly uh, now that that Biden is is in office, uh, but people are still being barred from entering. Um, on the premise that there is a, a public health concern and there absolutely is. There absolutely is a, a public health concern. People are, are still unfortunately dying from, um, what is now a preventable disease because we do have a, a vaccine. Um, and so people are still being barred. And yes, sometimes things do take longer. You do want to make sure that. Um, that no one is, is uh, you know, in the type of situation in which they may possibly be uh, spreading the disease. Um, but again, there are ways to prevent this. There are ways to, uh, I think in the last year, we've had a lot of time to figure out how to socially distance. Um, and uh, it may, it, that may be something that, that is taking longer uh, in order to, to process children through um, but it doesn't really go to the heart of the question, which I think uh, for a lot of people there is concern of the sheer number of children that are being kept um, at the border uh, in these Border Patrol facilities and, and also in shelters.
2: Less than two months into his presidency, it's clear that the growing influx of migrants at the southern border and how the US will treat them is going to be one of Joe Biden's most closely watched challenges. Just out tonight, NBC News reporting the ICE agency will continue detaining families according to a senior ICE official. This is despite Biden and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas condemning the practice of detaining migrant families beyond 72 hours and a recent court filing by the Biden administration that mentioned their plan to end that practice. The ICE official, though, said, we are not ending family detention, we are not closing the family detention centres that it's about making it very clear that the border is not open and people should not come. This news comes on the heels of Biden already facing criticism for how migrant children are going to be dealt with in the aftermath of one of the most egregious and inhumane episodes of the Trump administration, indefinitely separating children from their families, putting them in cages, not providing them with the most basic of sanitary supplies like soap or toothpaste, even allegations of sexual and physical abuse. Joe Biden campaigned on a platform to quickly reverse his predecessors' profoundly cruel policies. But once Biden was elected, he made it clear he couldn't actually undo all of Trump's directives as swiftly as he had promised.
1: I will accomplish what I said I would do, a much more humane policy based on family unification, but it requires getting a lot in place and requires getting the funding to get it in place. It's not gonna be able to be done on day one, lift every restriction that exist and find out that and go back to what it was 20 years ago and all of a sudden find out we have a crisis on our hand that complicates what we're trying to do.
2: But the current situation, which some have called a crisis is already getting complicated. According to the New York Times, the number of migrant children in custody along the border has tripled in the past two weeks to more than 3,200. And now these thousands of children are backed up in detention facilities. How do you process them out of detention and into homes? How will they be treated while in custody? The questions are mounting, and the influx is in part due to the fact that Biden is no longer expelling unaccompanied migrant children, which Trump began doing last year. The White House press secretary said the situation has presented difficult choices. And the reality is some of those difficult choices might not look so good for Biden, like reopening an emergency influx facility in Texas for migrant children, one used by Trump in 2019, or reopening a for-profit influx center in Homestead, Florida, a site rife with accusations of sexual abuse, overcrowding, and negligent hiring practices. Aside from these facilities, the Biden administration is also still expelling children who arrive with their parents or guardians at the border. It's a pandemic-related restriction put in place by Trump, but it came despite the fact that a top CDC doctor said at the time the decision had no basis in public health. And after Biden came into office, medical and public health experts sent a letter to the CDC saying the same, that there was no scientific basis for these restrictions on asylum seekers and migrant families. As many point out, part of these tough immigration policies often have to do with deterrence, hoping more migrants don't come over if they know they'll be turned away. But is it working? Is it going to work? And can Biden deal with this influx of migrant children in a way that's both effective, but also humane? Joining me to discuss this is Melissa Tavares from the Florida Immigrant Coalition an immigrant advocacy group with more than 65 member organizations. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Earlier today news broke that ICE is going to continue its practice of holding migrant families in detention centers at the border uh, despite Biden and his Homeland Security Secretary saying they were going to end it. Currently, according to the official, there are still more than 100 families in a detention center near San Antonio, over 350 in another in South Texas. What do you make of all this and the statement by this ICE official?
7: And they are looking to open this Homestead Detention Facility Center for children as well. This is very lamentable. It's very sad that we are still looking at a policy that could possibly separate children from their families. There are alternatives to putting families inside of detention centers and that have been successful in the past. So this is very sad. It's very unfortunate. And we really hope that it moves in another direction.
2: And on the migrant children, on the specific issue of children being held, we've seen reports that the number of kids being held in facilities has tripled in recent weeks. The New York Times said it was more than 3,250. But the Biden administration wouldn't confirm. Uh, Jen Psaki today, his press secretary, dodged the question, saying they couldn't confirm it because it's a Department of Homeland Security matter. Does that worry at all that they're refusing to say how many children are in
7: detention? Of course, it does worry that us because it also gives us sort of an indicator of what they know. And it's similar to what we saw with the previous administration, sort of how they haphazardly handled the children. And look, you talked, Mehdi, about how this policy of keeping families inside of detention could possibly be a way of deterring families. The fact of the matter is, if they do not keep families inside of detention centers, these for-profit organizations do not make a dollar. Here at the Homestead Facility Center, for example, they made $775 per child per day. In some cases, we heard from some wow. case managers that it would take longer long to reunify these kids with their families. Because obviously, the longer the children stayed inside of the facility, the more money they made. I mean, look, when the news broke about children being separated from their families, we all heard the audio of the little girl crying for her aunt. In the audio, she kept insisting, I know my aunt's phone number. I can call her. So there are alternatives to keeping children inside of detention centers. There are children. There are churches, organizations that seem more like a home. Look, in the we saw that with um, after the Cuban refugee crisis, there was an influx of also underage, unaccompanied children coming in from Cuba under the Peter Pan program, which was highly successful. And these kids were actually put with children with um, churches, with families. They were never put inside side of a military installation where, for example, here in Homestead, it's adjacent literally to an Air Force base. These kids were listening to firefighter planes in the middle of the night. That's not a place to put children. That's not in in the best. That's not the best thing for kids. Now, when we try to look at the justification for these policies and we look at the dollars and we look at, for example, how in the time that the Homestead facility was open, they made about $350 million then we really have to think critically and ask critical questions about what are the motivating underlying factors behind these policies.
2: So fascinating when you talk about the options and alternatives, because people say, well, if you don't detain them, you just have to release them on the streets. And you're pointing out, no, there are other places that they can go that they can be resettled. And yet it's not happening. In fact, the Biden administration is now talking about possibly reopening the homestead facility uh, in Florida that once held up to 3,000 children and came under fire in 2019 for reports of sexual abuse and overcrowding. Uh, They say they have no choice. They need the space. The welfare of the kids will be looked after. But... I mean, your organization, I know, protested strongly and lobbied against Homestead. I mean, why pick Homestead? It's bizarre. Why, I mean, Even if you have to put kids in detention, why pick that facility of all facilities?
7: Absolutely. Uh, literally a facility that's in a contaminated area, it's full of pesticides, the water's contaminated. It has, there were no children agencies in charge of supervising the children, making sure that they were adequately treated and protected. As you mentioned in your introduction, there were allegations of sexual abuse. Why would you keep these children literally inside a military detention center where they were dressed in gray jumpsuits, rather than putting them with home, in homes or with churches or organizations where they will be cared for and treated like kids, not like prisoners?
12: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism: shut down detention centers. First 10 to communities, not cages. A cage by any other name is still a freaking cage. It doesn't matter what you call it or who's in the White House. America's archaic and inhumane immigration system began decades ago and today is built on a network of 200 barbaric detention centers across the country managed by money-hungry contractors and ICE. An agency with such a vile history of violence, misogyny, neglect, and racism, its very existence should be a crime against humanity. Trump took advantage of this already broken and cruel system and added his own brand of evil. But until Biden does something bold and transformational to show he's not okay with the status quo, we are in for more nice-sounding renamings and shuffling people's lives around on a spreadsheet. That's why the immigrant rights organization Detention Watch Network is planning a week of action, March 22nd to 26th, to demand the beginning of the end of immigration detention in the United States. The First Ten is the next phase of Detention Watch Network's Communities Not Cages campaign launched in 2018. First Ten demands that Biden shut down 10 of the most notorious ICE immigration detention facilities in the first year of his administration and end detention contracts. As Detention Watch puts it, quote, These 10 centers are emblematic of how the immigration detention system as a whole is inherently abusive, unjust, and fatally flawed beyond repair, end quote. The 10 centers include Irwin County Detention Center in Irwin, Georgia, which recently made headlines due to reports of gynecological procedures performed without informed consent on detained women. That's in addition to serving meager and often rotten food, as well as hosting a work program that exploits the labor of those detained, paying $1 for a full day of work. Other centers on the list, like Farmville Detention Center in Virginia and Otero County Detention Center in New Mexico, have had the most COVID-19 cases during the pandemic with a well-documented history of inadequate medical care and use of disciplinary solitary confinement. These facilities cannot stand under any administration. Abolition is the end goal, but the first 10 can and must go now." Join in the week of action March 22nd to 26th by visiting detentionwatchnetwork.org and selecting the Communities Not Cages campaign in their Take Action dropdown. If you live near one of the 10 facilities, you can email Detention Watch and be connected to local campaigns leading shutdown efforts. Everyone else can download the campaign toolkit, share the social media materials and videos, sign the petition, and spread the word on social media using the hashtags First10 and CommunitiesNotCages. Be sure to follow Detention Watch on Twitter at Detention Watch. And finally, if you live in Maryland, New Mexico, and Washington State, help support the anti-detention legislation that has been introduced in your state this year as a result of the Communities Not Cages campaign. These pieces of legislation prevent new detention centers from being built in your states and prevent renewing existing contracts. Other states, take note. The segment notes include all the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if ensuring the humane treatment of our fellow human beings is important to you, be sure to tell everyone you know about Shutdown Detention Centers, First 10 to Communities Not Cages, March 22nd to 26th, so that others in your network can spread the word too.
7: Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses, or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong, putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong? Because it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of change.
3: Republicans' past stance on immigration reflected their support for business, even at the cost of workers in the United States who they depend upon for their support. Their current stance, however, seems to, you know, be more compatible with not with business interests, but more with racial concerns. Has the Republican Party made business interests less of a priority to the party than racial anxiety?
13: Um, I think that's fair to, to say, you know, there are a lot of employers um, who would like to see immigration reform. Like the growers in the agricultural sector that I mentioned before are facing a huge labor shortage at the moment and have been actually for a while. And they don't particularly like the idea that they can only find people who don't have legal status to to work for them, which is a big chunk of the current agricultural workforce. They would love to see immigration reform. They're very quiet about it. But groups like that were part of the Republican coalition not very long ago. Um, And it's not just those industries, I mean, employers like immigrants. Generally, they would like to have a system that welcomed more immigrants on a legal basis into this country. Um, And, you know, back in the days of, um, in the early part of this century, when um, the first George Bush was running the show, he actually tried to get immigration reform. He failed, but had a coalition of that included employers and business interests. Um, So the Republican Party used to have a kind of business wing that was interested in immigration reform. And that's when it seemed possible that it might actually take place. We haven't really had any major changes in immigration law since 1986. But, um, but now, especially in the Trump years, but even, you know, you mentioned the Sensenbrenner bill before that was another example of that. The nativist wing of the party has become the dominant one, one. And, um, you know, I, I think it's kind of a losing strategy in the long run for the Republicans because of the demography of the country and how it's changing. But that's where they are at the moment. And, you know, they haven't just because Trump is no longer president. That doesn't seem to have changed.
3: So this is all driven by a demand for low-wage labor. How important is low-wage labor for the survival of the sectors within which these low-wage workers operate? For instance, would, would affordable produce? Or meat be possible if it were not for low-wage labor? Do we need low-wage labor from other countries for our own survival?
13: I don't think so. I mean, meatpacking is a great example because until about 30 years ago, it actually, the jobs in that industry paid quite well and were unionized and have, you know, all the um, benefits that we associate with union jobs. Pensions, healthcare, and so on, and in that industry, there was a deliberate effort to restructure the whole industry that led to the disappearance of those jobs and often the physical movement of them from cities like Chicago, which used to have a big meatpacking industry, um, closer to where the cattle are raised, and that's like a whole complicated story in itself. But um, you know, it, it does The the money that's saved does not go into the pockets of consumers; it goes into the pockets of those employers.
3: Are jobs left behind for immigrants out of a sense of privilege? Does white privilege lead to low wage job loss to migrants?
7: I don't think
13: it's white privilege. I think it's the degradation of work. But let me give you another example that we haven't touched on so far in this conversation, which actually does not involve white workers, but African-Americans. Um, and that's paid domestic labor, cleaning houses and taking care of children and old people and that sort of thing. Um That used to be a field entirely dominated by African-Americans. In fact, in the 1930s, when the basic, what are still the bedrock labor laws that we have in this country were first passed, they excluded domestic labor and agricultural labor, partly because at the time, those were African-American dominated sectors. And to get the votes of Southern Democrats, a historical phenomenon we've almost forgotten, but there were lots of them at that time. Um, They had to exclude African-Americans. So, that's a whole history in itself. Anyway, in the 1960s and 70s, when civil rights legislation and the civil rights movement led to more jobs being opened up to African-American women, jobs in in, um, clerical fields, sales work, other kinds of service work, than domestic service, they fled the occupation. and, And, you know, of which they saw as very much tied to the historical legacy of slavery and you know, very degrading in all kinds of ways and also very poorly paid. Um, Meanwhile, for a lot of different reasons, including, you know, the increased employment of mothers, um, including growing inequality and lots of other things led to the aging of the population led to increased demand for paid domestic labor and African-Americans were no longer available to do it. So that became an immigrant um, occupation, too also based on an exodus of U.S.-born, in this case, African-American female workers. So, you know, that dynamic is not unique to things like construction or meatpacking. It's, it's um, and you know, in a capitalist economy, there's a lot of economic churning in the labor market constantly, really all the time. Like, so jobs are disappearing, other new jobs are being created, people are shifting around within the labor market. So this is, you know, immigration is just one factor in that mix um that's how it you know that's how it's always worked
3: as you know often when something is done to the vulnerable the marginalized and the exploited it is soon being done to not only them but us too and yeah. are there any signs of the as you call it brown collar the brown collarification if you will of not only low wage labor that is now conducted by immigrants but expanding into other sectors as well.
13: Well, I don't know that brown collar work per se is expanding into other sectors but some of the labor practices that employers have um, you know, institutionalized in low wage industries that affect immigrants especially are um becoming more widespread. So the the reason I called the book immigrant labor and the new precariat, that's a buzzword in my field. The precariat it just means Um, people whose employment is extremely insecure and often poorly compensated, you know, that's become a much more widespread phenomenon, even going up to the college-educated part of the workforce, who often have no idea if their job is going to be there the following month or the following year or even the following day. Um, And we see the emergence of things like the gig economy where, um, you know, there's no security whatsoever and those folks aren't even protected by employment laws because they're not considered employees, they're supposedly self-employed. So that kind of thing, the kind of degradation of working conditions and pay is spreading throughout the economy. And I would argue that it's in the interest of U.S.-born workers to lift up the paying conditions of farm-born workers, um, which would benefit both groups, um, that we need better labor standards and higher minimum wages and all the rest of it for everybody. Um, because, you know, it's a race to the bottom otherwise.
3: You mentioned that identity politics actually lead to deeper resentment by white, non-college educated workers. Why is that the case? Why do they get upset at identity politics and leading to more resentment?
13: Well, there is a perception that um, the demands of people of color, women, have somehow, you um, led to the declining fortunes of, of, you know, especially white men. Um, and I don't think that it's a zero sum game in the way it's portrayed, but similar to the scapegoating of immigrants, there is this sense that, you know, these folks are unfairly somehow cutting ahead in line of, um, people who were there first. Um, that's, you know, that's very unfortunate, but I think, uh, a narrative that instead emphasizes the ways in which, um, You know, corporate interests and right wing policymakers who see the market as the solution to everything um, have hurt both white men and many of these other groups at the same time is much more likely to bring people together to make social changes that could help with everybody's economic well-being.
3: And I asked you that because I wanna it leads into these questions I have about the reaction by some on the left. You mentioned past guests on our show like Andrea Nagel and Wolfgang Streck, both advocating for restrictive immigration laws in opposition to people like the Koch brothers who support open borders and the exploitation of workers that can you know that that can lead to. So how, how can low wage labor demand by US labor US employers be curbed, be limited better than by restricting immigration?
13: The better way would be to organize immigrant workers, which is actually happening in some sectors. Think of Justice for Janitors or um, you know groups like that, um, and lift up this, the floor for everybody. Um, I, I know that argument is very appealing to some people on the left, but I think it's dead wrong. That you know we need to it, rather than endorsing the politics of division, that employers and populist right-wing folks um, indulge in, we need to figure out um, how to build alliances across lines of color and nationality to improve the situation of workers generally. And I think it's actually happening a little bit here and there, not just the organizing, but if you do look at the polls recently about immigration reform, the, the, the public is generally much more sympathetic to immigration than they were in the Trump years. Um, partly because of some of the horrors of, you know, kids in cages at the border and stuff like that. Um, there has been a kind of reaction to the reaction. Um, more recently, that doesn't mean that we'll get immigration reform given the, you know, holding the line approach of Mitch McConnell and others in the, in the Senate, but, um, you know, without getting rid of the filibuster, I I think it's going to be difficult to, to have this changed legally, but the public is ready for it. And, you know even and, and I think that's true of the kind of labor reforms that help both immigrants and U.S.-born workers, like raising the minimum wage. You probably know this, but, you know, recently in Florida, of all places, not a bast- not a blue state or a bastion of progressivism, they passed an increase in the minimum wage through a referendum. So even in places like that, the general public recognizes the explosive growth of inequality and the damage it's done and, you know, the need to... Um, improve the, the economics at the bottom in a way that would affect people regardless of where they're from or what color they are.
14: And no matter how decent they are, no matter their reasons, the 11 million who broke these laws should be held accountable.
15: Barack Obama really furthered what Clinton put into place and also escalated it beyond that.
1: Today, President Obama signed a bill upping funding for border security by $600 million. The money will go for 1,000 new Border Patrol agents, plus 250 agents for ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, and 250 officers with U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the agency that polices against terror and other threats.
15: Obama spent billions of dollars securing the border, just as Clinton did in 94 after NAFTA. And under Barack Obama, the budgets of border and immigration enforcement actually began to outpace the budgets of all other federal law enforcement agencies combined.
1: Under President Obama's border plan, the National Guard will assist with intelligence gathering, surveillance, reconnaissance support, analysis and training, as well as supporting counter-narcotics enforcement.
15: Under President Obama, the kind of depictions in the public narrative of domestic and foreign threats, they merged, right? So the war at home and the war abroad boomeranged back and forth. The drones that the United States used to first attack Yemen and Pakistan were first tested on the U.S.-Mexico border. And President Obama, who received the Nobel Peace Prize, is a president who dropped an average of three bombs every hour in the year 2016, just prior to his departure, mostly through airstrikes and drone warfare on Syria, on Iraq, on Afghanistan, on Libya, on Yemen, on Somalia and on Pakistan. And when he signed DACA, you know, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was received with much praise and much celebration, but it was very worrying because he also signaled his intention to increase enforcement at the very same time using the Secure Communities program, which is very similar to the criminal alien program under Bill Clinton. And under Obama, deportation rates doubled, just as they had increased under Clinton. And by 2014, about half of all federal criminal arrests were immigration-related.
14: Even as we are a nation of immigrants, we're also a nation of laws. Undocumented workers broke our immigration laws. And I believe that they must be held accountable, especially those who may be dangerous. That's why over the past six years, deportations of criminals are up 80%. And that's why we're gonna keep focusing enforcement resources on actual threats to our security. Felons, not families. Criminals, not children. Gang members, not a mom who's working hard to provide for her kids. We'll prioritize, just like law
15: enforcement does every day. same year, 2014, was the year where there was a surge of unaccompanied minors at the border. Obama began incarcerating migrant families by detaining them in camps on military bases.
14: Although this summer there was a brief spike in unaccompanied children being apprehended at our border, the number of such children is now actually lower than it's been in nearly two years.
15: And you know, it was this foundation of incarcerating migrant families that then escalated to family separation and the crisis of hundreds of missing children and the caging of children under Trump. And in fact, several of the photographs of children in cages that went viral during Trump's presidency were actually taken during the Obama years.
14: Our message absolutely is don't send your children unaccompanied uh, on trains or through, uh, through a bunch of smugglers We don't even know how many of these kids don't make it and may have been waylaid into sex trafficking or killed because they fell off a train. We have no way of tracking that. So that is our direct message to the families in Central America. Do not send your children to the borders. If they do make it, they'll get sent back. More importantly, they may may not make it.
15: This was a bipartisan practice and it it is just simply not possible And would not have been possible for Trump to have done the horrific things that he did were it not for the foundations that were laid by President Barack Obama and previously by President Bill Clinton. We already know that the U.S. is implicated in why people are forced to move in the first place. And imperialism is already a root cause of displacement and migration, But I would argue that now another key pillar of contemporary imperialism is the outsourcing of border enforcement. And so the U.S. is basically funding immigration enforcement in Mexico and El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras. And through these various kinds of border outsourcing programs, the U.S. is essentially left off the hook and other countries now enact U.S. border enforcement. The border
11: just moves further and further south. Beginning on February 19th, the Department of Homeland Security will take steps to begin processing individuals who under the previous administration have been forced to remain in Mexico under the Migrant Protection Protocol. I will note this news should not be interpreted as an opening for people to migrate irregularly to the United States. Only eligible individuals will be allowed to enter through designated ports of entry at designated times. Through a whole-of-government approach...
15: Trump's infamous Remain in Mexico program you know, was a program that allowed U.S. border officials to return asylum seekers and refugees back to Mexico as they awaited their hearings. And so there was a lot of news about, you know, tens of thousands of Central American and African migrants and refugees who were trapped in Mexico, you know, in teeming tent camps under horrific conditions and immobilized in Mexico, unable to enter into the United States. But really, what we will see under Joe Biden is is that, you know, he may halt border wall construction, but he will continue to outsource border enforcement the way Obama did. And that will allow the U.S. to not only have a wall at the border, it will allow the U.S. to create an entire anti-migrant fortress that extends far beyond the wall itself. And we already saw this in the first few days of the Biden administration when thousands of migrants from Honduras who were headed towards the United States were blockaded and tear-gassed by Guatemalan soldiers and police. The new frontier of U.S. border militarization is not Trump's wall. It's not that symbolic wall on the border. It is this far more dangerous, far more invisible, far more threatening and far more repressive form of immigration enforcement.
11: Now is not the time to come. And the vast majority of people uh, will be turned away. Asylum processes at the border will not occur immediately. It will take time to implement.
15: And the last thing that I would say is that we really have to go further to challenge the border itself. You know, some of those early processes of border formation were very much about containment, whether that was the imperial annexation of over 500,000 square miles of Mexican territory, whether that was capturing indigenous lands and indigenous nations and forcibly forcing them into the US settler state, or punishing free black movement through the Fugitive Slave Act. All of these acts uh, and processes were central to US border formation. And I think in the contemporary era, We often think of indigenous elimination, anti-black enslavement, imperialism, and migrant exclusion as linked but separated processes, right? Like often our social movements don't make these links. We see ourselves in solidarity with those struggles, but we don't always see these deep historic ways in which these processes required each other to make the U.S. the settler colonial imperial empire that it is. Right. So the border was not just a line on a map. It is a constantly produced racial regime. It's a constantly produced labor regime and it's a carceral regime. It's a form of enacting immobilization and control. And that's why I think that, you know, an internationalist and interconnected abolitionist vision of freedom requires a world without police, requires a world without prisons, requires a world without private property, requires a world without militaries and requires a world without borders.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with The Mehdi Hassan Show, highlighting the decades of failed immigration reform efforts. The Mother Jones podcast explained that the Biden administration simply cannot erase all of the horrors of the Trump administration overnight. Only in America spoke with Joy Olson about the big picture of our immigration situation and what problems Biden has to solve. Democracy Now discussed the detention centers still being used to house children at the border and the xenophobic Title 42 policy. The Medi Hassan show discussed alternatives to the status quo that we should be exploring. Our activism for today is in support of the Communities Not Cages week of action from March 22nd to 26th from Detention Watch. This is Hell discussed some of the underlying issues and tensions between the business and racist interests vying for control of the Republican Party. And Intercepted looked at the history of our immigration system from Obama forward. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips, including more from Intercepted looking back even farther to the Clinton administration when the Democrats really pivoted to a law and order approach to immigration and future hindsight which discuss the even deeper history of separating children from their families as a form of social control. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked, and now we'll hear from you.
1: Hello, best of the left, Dave from Olympia, Washington. I just listened to the uh, foreign policy episode uh, about the Biden administration, and your ending commentary focusing on this kind of oh classically disjointed Joe Biden interview, and I just feel I feel <laughs> I sort of feel bad. He falls into kind of the classic media relations traps that pretty smart, relatively informed, but not media savvy and not great public speakers just like trip, 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 trip. trip. First of all, the the questioner, he asked about, you had a conversation with China's leader. How did that go? Right? He, He framed it as the conversation. And so Biden, in an attempt not to be that kind of politician that doesn't answer the question that you get asked, right? He's overly literal about it and talks literally about the conversation he had, not about what the interviewer wanted to know about or what was important or what he should have been on message for. (laughs) He starts rambling about the conversation. And he goes into this... Like, he knows it's complicated. He knows it's nuanced. And he wants to share with everyone how nuanced it is. There's reasons that people do stuff. I can't just say no it's bad and tomorrow no it's like it's this whole thing and but oh it was it was painful to listen to and you could tell there were so many ideas popping into his head that he wanted to share about china's history and about his relationship with the leader and and they kept like crowding into his mouth and he's stumbling over himself you know (laughs) trying to say everything he thinks he wants to say. It's like, ah, uh, it's just class Biden. It's such a bad, it's such a bad media clip and such a bad explanation. I totally understand why people are like, what, what, what is, what is, what, is, what, you, what is the U.S.'s policy here? What is he trying to say? What's the whole point? I get it because it was, it was not good communication. I lost my train of thought talking about Biden's interview. I wanted to end with kind of the distinction between is it dumb or is it evil i think biden's kind of dumb he's not great at public speaking he's not good at communication and you can contrast this with our former president who not only wouldn't have made a passing reference to nabida Costello routine would have played it up made it most of the thing Said something aggressively racist, tried to parlay it into talking about their pandemic instead of, you know, even focusing on human rights abuse. It's the difference between being unintentionally vague because you're not a great communicator and being intentionally vague where it could technically be open to your interpretations like, you know, oh, Nazis, well, there's good people on both sides. And five days later, grudgingly coming in, I said, well, I guess that, you know, Nazis are so bad and we don't want to support that. I forget exactly what our former president said in that instance. But it was clear that the first thing was like what was intentional and what was meant. And it was not very well obscured, but the intent was to give a wink and a nod to the racist and to the fascist. But obscure, you know, be be at least a little bit subtle about it, and the media is so fanatically, or was so fanatically anxious to hop on to, well, he apologized, he he took back the statement, they rolled back, they softened their initial statements. When it's calculated, it was not a slip of the tongue, it was not unintentional, that was on purpose. And I guess I'm still new enough into the Biden administration that it's refreshing still to at least not be aggressively evil maybe subtly evil in the way that you had uh, mentioned the performative nature of our uh, condemnation of the human rights abuses but it's substantially different it's just a different league from the way our former president would mislead using the media or have doubt about what his statements were anywho as always stay awesome
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. Now, somewhat in response to Dave's comments that we just heard, I will tell you about the thoughts I've been having this past week. As I've been watching the news tickers go by, and all of the profound levels of nonsense being discussed, the question popped to mind, is this the normal that we were really hoping to get back to? Just the pettiest of nonsense on one side, like defending the right for kids' books and cartoons to be racist and sexually aggressive, while on the other side, we're just excited about not being aggressively evil anymore. On the whole, I would say that yes, this is probably the normal we should have been hoping for and if your expectations were appropriately low then we may very well be meeting your low expectations as as we are more or less meeting mine you know boring inadequacy punctuated by absolute obnoxiousness is still better than fascism that is for sure but i feel like I'm sort of having trouble readjusting. It's a a bit like a soldier coming home from war who struggles to adjust back to the normal, relatively inconsequential bullshit of everyday life. On one hand, it's nice to be back in some degree of normalcy where your internal terror alert chart can be turned down to yellow or so, but it also really heightens the absurdity of the nonsense. That we are pushed to pay attention to, because on one hand, we have a political party and propaganda machine dedicated to focusing on the only thing they have left, which is the culture wars. And on the other, we have the rest of the media, which knows that nonsense is actually pretty good at capturing attention, which they can turn into dollars. So, again, it's better than fascism but it's taking a different kind of mental toll, I think, to wade through the nonsense on any given day. Like We actually had to take a week off from a planned bonus show recording session because of this phenomenon. We knew that there must be some real stories out there to discuss, but we had been so mentally buried by the bullshit that we couldn't muster the energy to pull out the diamonds of substance from the dunghill of media that we'd been following, at at least right up to the point of the Atlanta shootings, but our recording window had already closed by the time we could wrap our minds around that one. So, I don't know, what is the point of all this? I guess it's uh, that we're the real victims of the Trump administration. No, 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 that, sorry, that doesn't sound right. Um, Okay, how about about this? We were talking behind the scenes here uh, the other day about how we want to cover topics like Biden's immigration and the COVID relief package that just passed. And we want to talk about the need to take some time to celebrate victories, even small ones, because the right is always going to give us something to be annoyed about. And progressives are particularly adept at finding the flaws and focusing on them in an attempt to fix them. But what we need for our mental health is some focus on positivity every once in a while. So we're going to try to do a bit of that, not to be mistaken for cheerleading Democrats or Biden, and certainly not losing sight of the problems that need to be solved. But when we can, we'll try to include some focus on progress, even if it's minor and imperfect. Because as any political organizer worth their salt will tell you, it is the small victories along the way that help keep up the energy for the big fights that can lead to big victories. So, that's the plan. I hope that's okay. Keep the comments coming in, as always, at 202 3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, and so on and so on. And thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And of course, everyone can support the show and earn rewards, including our super secret Best of Left artwork for your electronic devices by telling everyone you know about the show using our referomatic system at bestofleft.com slash refer. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode,